Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. Good evening. And I'm John Priddo from The Economist. It's week three of our nightly dialogue with all of you. It's Monday night. That means our focus tonight will be on your stories. We're not asking for your opinions on Mondays. Instead, tell us about your lives. Help us understand how the big, heated debates of this political moment are relevant to your own circle of friends, family and work. Last week on both Wednesday and Thursday night, our host pursued questions about American identity. What is America and who gets to be part of it? Tonight, we're going to continue that discussion and maybe even put a little finer point on the question. One critique of President Trump's executive orders is that they're poorly crafted and have caused chaos. This has come from across the political across the political spectrum. The complaint that agree or disagree with the goals, they just don't seem like thought through public policy. But what if they were never meant to be tidy legal documents? What if the details were never really the point? One reading of Trump's first two weeks, and I'll be honest, this is certainly how I've taken it, is that the president is articulating who exactly he means when he says America, who it is he plans to put first. And in that light, we're not talking about immigration policy or national security or really any of that. We're having a cultural debate about belonging, about who feels like this is their community, or maybe more importantly in Trump's America, about who feels alienated from it. So listeners, that's what we want to hear from you about tonight, your sense of belonging. How do you fit in American culture? Do you feel a sense of belonging in this American community or do you feel alienated by it? If so, when did that start? When did things change for you? What made them change? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Of course, given the news in the past couple of weeks, religion and nationality are an inescapable part of this conversation. This isn't the kind of stuff that can be boiled down to numbers, but to give you a sense of what other Americans are thinking, here are some findings from a big survey released last week by the Pew Research Center. About 30% of Americans think that to be truly American, you have to have been born here. 30% of Americans, well, just a shade more actually, also say that to be truly American, you have to be a Christian. Another way of looking at those numbers is to turn them on their head and say that clear majorities of Americans don't think that religion or birthplace matter. You can be a true American no matter where you're born or which God you worship. So listeners, do either of those things resonate with you? Do you feel like you belong in America at this moment? Are you alienated by our culture? And does religion, does your religion or your faith play a role in that? We'll talk about faith and religion a lot in a lot more detail later in the show. Um, but, you know, for now, again, how, how do you belong? Maybe it's some other part of yourself. Maybe it's your race or your gender or your age. Maybe it's where you live, the kind of place, the kind of place you work. How does that relate to your sense of belonging in America? Do you feel like you are part of this community? 844-745-TALK. That's 
888-825-8255. And while calls are coming in, John and I are thrilled to have with us a guy who has thought a lot about American culture and who fits in it both now and over the years. Jeff Chang is author most recently of We Gonna Be All Right, Notes on Race and Resegregation. And he has spent decades writing, researching, and generally just working the question of how race shapes American culture and politics. He joins us by Skype from his office at Stanford University, where he's the executive director of the Institute for Diversity in the Arts. Jeff, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Kai. So let us kind of start from the beginning here. I know you have talked a lot about the relationship between culture and politics, which one works on which, how they work together. Help us understand that one-on-one. What drives what? Culture or politics? How do they play with each other? Uh, we like to say that culture, cultural change precedes political change so that uh, in the process of trying to articulate what another world can look like, we've got to be able to create the imagination uh, within the culture first for people to be able to move towards. Now, on the other hand, what we can say is that a lot of times we'll see um, the other side uh, working on culture, uh, the other side meaning those who think that that this country should be more exclusive, that sh- it should be limited uh, in so many ways. And, and I think that we've seen, for instance, Trump making use of the culture uh, to be able to advance uh, those kinds of politics as well. So culture drives politics then in, in, in your, in your idea. That's, 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 that's the beginning. And I want to say, I mean, I guess embedded in your, your remark, the other side, you know, people like yourself and myself have spent a lot of energy in the recent past, you know, asserting that people of color and immigrants of all stripes, that we refuse to live on the margins of political culture and of American political culture any longer, you know, that we are the story of this nation. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's honestly had a meaningful impact, right? Like we've seen it in politics, the Obama coalition, but also in all manner of culture, film, TV, music, art, the reigning royal family America is, of America is arguably Beyonce and Jay-Z, who are black people, <laughs> right? Right, yeah. Um, so thinking about the question we've asked for our listeners, would you agree that we've been in a moment over, say, at least the past decade where a lot of people feel like they have in fact belonged to the American community for the first time that as a consequence of these changes that I'm describing, that, that people have been living through sort of a big cultural pivot for themselves. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, you saw it in all of the different types of narratives uh, that came out during the first Obama campaign, Uh, Michelle Obama herself uh, saying at one point uh, that, you know, she, uh, finally felt like she was uh, an American, full-fledged American for the first time. And let me actually, um, let me interrupt you, Jeff, because we actually, we wanted to play a, a clip of that, because I think it's a really, it was, it was a notable uh, moment in, in American politics where, 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 this is where Michelle Obama speaking right after the, the, the 2008 election. Let me tell you something, for the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country, and not just because... Barack has done well, but because I think people are hungry for change. And people really came at her for that remark, though, Jeff. That was something that 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 really caused a stir in our political culture. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think that that's where we saw uh, this falling along racial lines. I think a lot of folks of color were like, yeah, <laughs> we agree with that. Um, you know, people like my neighbor, uh, Maury Turner, who, uh, God rest uh, Maury now, you know, but he had never felt as much a part of 
the U.S. Uh, at his age. He was in his 80s at that particular point, um, as at that moment when Obama, when it was announced that Obama was elected. Um, on the other hand, of course, you had a lot of folks saying, well, she's being an American. How can she have uh, possibly risen to this particular position, uh, being the first lady of America, without ever having loved the country? And there's a whole, there was a whole debate that came out around patriotism, whether uh, Obama... Uh, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama were patriotic enough. Yeah. Well, callers, if you've just joined us, we're talking about belonging, thinking about this political moment as a fight over who feels like they belong in American culture, who feels alienated from it. Give us a call, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I want to bring in Era from Fairfax, Virginia. Yes, hi, how are you? I am well. You're on the air. How can Tell us about your experience. Yes, so I'm a Syrian immigrant, and uh, it took me many years, several decades, to really understand what America is all about. And uh, for the past few years, I've, I've been listening to more news and more politics. And I, I, for the first time, I've never voted Democrat or Republican, but for the first time voted for one of the big parties because of Trump. Because I think Trump represents not the personality of the individual, but basically the idea of uh, increasing uh, freedom for business and uh, less regulations and so forth. I believe that that patriotism is what binds this country together. And, and for the first time, I felt American. Coming from Syria, I was born in Syria, Aleppo, Syria. And, uh, and I plan to start my own business They'll open up a factory, actually, for 3D printing, because I feel that there's going to be less impediments. If Hillary had won, and not necessarily against Hillary, uh, but her, the big government, increased regulation and so forth, I would not have done it. I would not be investing. And I think that's going to turbocharge the country. And I have to say that I'm, I'm a moderate Trump supporter, meaning that I'm socially liberal. Okay? I, am, I have conservative, conservative interests. But I'm socially liberal, and I think that we are being not represented in this extreme Era, left-wing can I just, media. Era, hey, it's John here. Thanks for calling. Can I ask, how old were you when you left Syria? Uh, I was eight. You were eight years old. And did you have a view growing up in Syria of what America was like? Well, yeah, we always heard, uh, you know, the same things that you would hear, what immigrants would hear, the land of opportunity and streets are paved in gold. And I remember uh, other cousins coming back to Syria visiting. They were like, it's amazing. The garbage trucks are white. They come with white garbage trucks. Because in Syria, the garbage collectors are usually uh, mentally uh, ill people or just not a respected job. And it was amazing to for a lot of us to hear that it's a reputable job here. They're and white, you have white, white, clean garbage sanitation. Stuff. Well, here in New York, sanitation is is is, is a very important and and, and high paying job. We we're into the. But Jeff, can I ask you to kind of talk about? There's something interesting there in that uh, people would have a certain idea of of what era as a Syrian immigrant, what his politics would be and how he would feel like a, a belonging or lack of belonging in America. And it sounds very different than, 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 than I think what people would think. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a really, really interesting thing here to, to, to kind of uh, look at this uh, particular story. Uh, Era is saying that he, uh, for the first time, feels American because he was uh, able to, to make a choice here 
um, to vote for Trump. Um, and and I think that that's actually kind of moving in a way. I mean, in some ways, it's sort of uh, the 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 what immigrants uh, desire, right? To to come to the U.S. for uh, to be able to have the ability to determine what their future uh, might be, uh, free of of the different kinds of constraints that might have been put on them um, in in whatever places that they were that they were in. Uh, so Aaron's story is really interesting and unusual, but it also um, is is a testament, I think, to uh, the values of diversity and inclusion um, and equity, uh, the, the fact that we would be able to hear a story like Eris here. And you, that you could just come and be who you're going to be regardless of, who you, of, of where you came from. Uh, I want to go to David in Indianapolis, my hometown. David, how you doing? What's going on in Naptown? Hey, uh, how you doing this evening, Kai? It's a pleasure to be on the show. Naptown is Naptown. You know how it is. Wait five minutes, <laughs> the weather change. Everything is, you know, we all, we the slow town. That's why they call us Naptown. <laughs> well, but it's okay. Well, tell me uh, about your blog and your sense of belonging, David. Well, uh, I, I've had, I've, I've lived in two different worlds here in Indianapolis. Uh, I'm a Catholic school boy, so... My Catholic school as a child was all black with one white. My Catholic school as a teenager was all white with one black, me. <laughs> okay, if you're familiar, well, I guess I shouldn't say any names, but um, you're familiar with Indianapolis, you know the area, so you know how the Catholic schools work here. Uh, my sense of belonging was never, I never really, I, I, when I thought I had one, I found out I didn't. When I thought I, I didn't have one, I found out maybe I did have one. So it was a little bit different for me. My my story goes a different manner. Uh, when I thought I had a chance to go to college, I couldn't get anyone in the white establishment to help me to get there. Uh, no one cared. No one wanted me there, actually. Then as a, as a, as a, a guy out in the working world after having a child out of wedlock, I was embraced because I could speak fluently, and I was a— fairly intelligent young man who came from a Catholic school. Mm. So there are some, you know, there are some dichotomies there that I don't know that everybody has. But for me, one, there was one thing that happened just recently in a movie that told me where I stand in America. I'll give it to you and I'll try and do it quickly. Please do. If you guys remember the, uh, the movie, oh, I think it was called The, the Good Shepherd with Matt Damon okay. as a CIA well, he's standing and he's talking to Danny DeVito. And Danny DeVito is an Italian, you know, mobster, as he always plays. And uh, Danny goes into a, a dialogue and he says, uh, you know, the Italians, hey, we got the rackets. You know, the blacks, they got the drugs. The, now, he used some fairly different derogatory terms there. Uh, but the, the, the WAPs, they got the, they yeah. have the, the liquor and those things. And then he said, he was talking to Matt Damon, and he said, what do you guys got? And Matt Damon turned to him and quietly said, we got it all. Y'all mm. just visiting. And that's how mm. I feel now about America. Mm. Thank, thank you for that, David. I'm, I'm, Jeff, you're, you're nodding along verbally. What, what, what do you think about that? <laughs> um, I, it's the kind of admission that, that we wouldn't have expected to uh, have happened in anything but art until the Trump era, um, in in which 
uh, Trump's sort of racial animus and religious animus is is on full display. Uh, I think that that's you know that's sort of a that Matt Damon's character is sort of an echo of how of how Trump seems to be um, acting in in his in his first days in office here. Uh, you, I think you pointed this out in in your introduction, uh, and saying who belongs, who, which Americans will come first in in an American first, America first uh, um, country. I think it's interesting, though. He did, you know, David was saying something about his economic situation too, and how it related mm-hmm. to his sense of belonging. And that when he was doing well, he felt like nobody was there for him, and then when he was doing poorly, everybody was there for them. Is is what I what I gathered from that, I, and and I wonder about that. That kind of echoes. Uh, what it seems like uh, we're hearing from some Trump supporters, right, who said that, you know, um, now that they're, they're, things are doing poorly, the country's not there for them. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's an interesting type of thing. You know, I, I think polls show uh, that consistently that uh, communities of color are much more optimistic about the future than whites are at this particular point um, in history. And, and and I think that's really telling. I think that's something that we might be able to dive into deeper as 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 time kind of moves on, you know, um, which is the sort of idea that that um, part of what makes us American is uh, having the struggle, you know, struggling for uh, that kind of uh, that kind of recognition. I know for me it's been true. I think in in the fights that that um, I've been in. Uh, brought into and engaged in uh, around social justice. That's when I felt more American uh, than anything else. To 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 sort of um, to be able to draw upon these ideals uh, that America is supposed to stand for. And I think that's what I was hearing in Era's uh, comments from the very beginning. That's what struck me. I'd love to hear what he thinks about the uh, the Muslim ban and and uh, and his ideas uh, uh, Trump's ideas about immigration at this particular point too. Let's try to get one more call in before we have to go to a break. Or well, maybe I won't have time for that. But let me. Uh, all right, all right. My, I, I'm getting some some debate about whether we have time. But let's go for it. Evelina in Huntington, Long Island. Evelina, you're on the air, and you just have a couple of seconds here. But I want to hear I want to hear your story about about belonging. Thank you for taking my call. I was born in South America. Of my mom was Bolivian and my dad was from here. We moved here when I was five, and I'm now a senior citizen. I've lived here all my life, and I was I participated in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, and have been pretty much an activist all my life. Um, I lost my job right before the first election in which President Obama was elected, and I worked really hard for him both times. It was, although my life wasn't going so swimmingly in terms of employment and health care, I, I was I'm, very happy to have him be president. And I shared Michelle Obama's feeling when she said that they, thing about... This is the first time I'm really proud I felt that way. Thank you for that, Evelina. We're going to have to cut you off there. We will be back after a short break. You're listening to Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about change in the Trump era. We will be right back. Stay with us. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. 
In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. And I'm John Prado from The Economist. We've been taking your calls on when you felt like you belonged in this country. We've heard all kinds of reasons why people feel like they belong or don't, from Robert De Niro movies to garbage trucks. <laughs> Keep your calls coming in. We're going to continue to talk about this 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Uh, Jeff, I want to play you a clip of something that came up on last Wednesday's show. Charlie Sykes, who hosts our show on Wednesday nights, has, was asking callers what they mean when they say they, they feel like they're losing their country. Mm. Uh, and he says he's heard this from all sides of the political debate. But here's what Marta from Indianapolis, another one of my hometown uh, peeps, uh, said in response. <laughs> for those of us who are not straight, or more importantly, for those of us who are not white, um, this country is never fully been ours. Um, I think that the, the promises of, of safety, uh, liberty, justice, freedom. Um, Has it gotten better? Really has it gotten better or worse? Pardon? Uh, I think that I think that it has gotten more uh, gotten better, uh, especially in the past eight years. And um, for those who have been saying lead, leading up to the election that we need to make America great again, uh, they are responding to that. That's a knee-jerk response to reminders of white supremacy and ongoing injustice. So here's the thing, Jeff. The reason why I'm playing that for you is that, you know, mm. a, a common thing to say nowadays is to is to really chastise people like Marta for saying stuff like that, that we're, we're shutting down the conversation if you talk about white supremacy and Trump land. Now, I, I personally believe you got to call racism racism, but... Is there something about the cultural alienation that some people in Obama's America felt that the racial justice movement needs to deal with beyond just naming racism when they see it? You know, so when you hear all lives matter, our frustration with what Trump called political correctness, is there something in there that presents a real challenge to people who are trying to genuinely build a multiracial democracy? Yeah, and I, I think what it is is, you know, fear is the lubricant of demagoguery, you know, and to the extent that demagogues can encourage fear, uh, they're allowed to be able to divide and conquer. And and I think that um, what what I what what I think the 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 sort of uh, side that wants to move towards more justice, more equity, more fairness for all needs to find is a positive message that mobilizes uh, some of the folks who uh, fell into. Um, the the sort of thrall of of the fear argument, um, and I guess what I mean by that is is we need to be able to articulate a culture and a politics um, that offers uh, hope for all, um, and and I think that fear is an easy way to do it. Uh, it's much much more difficult for us to argue and to advance uh, a vision um, of economic justice that opens up uh, avenues for 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 everyone. Jeff, can I push you on that a little bit? I think one of the things Please, behind yeah. Kai's question was this feeling that if you 
talk to people who are in favor of diversity, like, you know, like most of us on this show and like many of the callers who, who, are, who are calling in, that diversity has been defined in a, in a slightly narrow way, by which I mean that, you know, if you wander around campuses like Stanford, you don't find, you know, too many white folks from Appalachia with... Uh, you know, stridently conservative political views that that you know one kind of diversity is um, encouraged and 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 but it's kind of comes at the expense of another kind of diversity. You know, do you think there's something to that that charge? And if so, is there an adjustment that needs to be made for people, by, on the behalf of people who are arguing that you know kind of difference is is strengthens us all? I do. I do believe that in this country that there are uh, there are no alternative facts. But there are a lot of alternative realities uh, that we're living in different realities because of segregation um, and that we have to take that into account um, as we try to advance a, a vision of, of justice for all. It's absolutely true, John, that um, at the Stanford campus that uh, poor white folks, uh, poor white folks from Appalachia, poor white folks from the South are underrepresented um, in the instances where uh, where I've been able to work with uh, students like that, um, it's been it's been an amazing and eye-opening type of uh, experience to try to figure out um, where we can find common ground. And I think that that's the sort of type of thing that we have to do all across the board. I certainly believe that uh, that Trump, though, is not offering uh, a vision uh, that will allow us to to be able to get there. He's in, instead figuring out ways to encase us further in our, our respective realities. So I want, to, I want to bring in another guest to join our conversation, Emma Green, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic covering politics and religion. Welcome, Emma. Thanks so much for having me. Emma, thanks for being here. So conventional wisdom is that the election last year was mostly about economic anxiety, that a lot of former Obama voters unexpectedly showed up for Donald Trump because they felt left out of the economy. But you've been looking at the role that religion has played uh, in, in the election and in this moment in American history. What have you found? Is there something else afoot uh, in the cultural, in sort of cultural or religious alienation that the people who talk about this in economic terms are missing? Well, the demographic statistic that stood out to me the most as we were looking at the election and who had voted for who was this number that's been tossed around, 81% of white evangelical Protestants supported Trump. And I think this number is telling for a lot of reasons. The first is some of what we've been talking about, the sort of racial realities that exist within those groups and those communities, a lot of them being in the Midwest and in the South. Um, but then another is what kinds of values those voters share and whether their religious identity and their values as religious people led them to vote for Trump for one reason or another. I think there's a case to be made that, in fact, those religious values led them to cast a vote, even if they weren't necessarily enthusiastic about Trump. They felt like he was their only outcome and their only option. Because you had some voters who thought, oh, I don't like either candidate that much, but there's one who says he's pro-life, so I'm going to go for him. I think that was the case for a lot of people. I also think that within some of those sort of culturally conservative, deeply Christian worlds, there's a really longstanding hate of the Clintons and Hillary Clinton in particular that fed into a lot of people's discontent and feeling like they had no other options but Trump, even if they didn't really particularly like him. 
What I found extraordinary looking at this as a kind of, I write about politics in my day job, was that I thought, and lots of other commentators thought, that white evangelical Protestant voters, you know, really wanted one of their own um, to get the Republican nomination. And, you know, whatever you think about Donald Trump, he's not kind of authentically of that movement, right? And and yet when it came down to it, it, it seemed that didn't matter that much. It, you know, as long as the candidate took a couple of positions um, that were dear to the hearts of, you know, dear to the kind of values of those voters, kind of that, that was okay. Was that something that surprised you or did you kind of see it coming? Well, on the one hand, I think another way of slicing that demographic statistic is to say that people who have traditionally voted Republican voted for a Republican in this presidential election. So it's not that surprising in that regard. But what I will say on this topic of alienation that we've been talking about, I think there are a lot of conservative, deeply religious, very um, sort of spiritual folks who are evangelicals or perhaps white Catholics who feel alienated in the Trump era just as much as someone who identifies as progressive. I think the nature of that alienation might be different. But one issue that I've been thinking about a lot in this regard recently is refugees. Uh, Conservative Christian organizations are among the leading organizations of resettlement efforts. They take a lot of government grants to do this. And there are a lot of Christians whose mission work really teaches them that helping the stranger, helping the refugee, helping the unsettled person is one of the biggest calls that they have. I think those folks feel a lot of discontent and unsureness about how they fit and how their religion fits in this Trump era. Can can we pull the camera back a little bit, Emma? So over the past eight years, previous eight years, the phrase religious freedom became associated with questions about you know, when the federal government can compel people to act in a way that contradicts their beliefs. And over the next four or maybe eight years, depending on how the next election goes, that phrase may come to mean something different. Can you talk a little bit about how an idea that seems so fundamentally American, to me at least, you know, religious freedom, became so politicized. Trump has been talking about religious liberty nonstop. He talked about this at the National Prayer Breakfast. He was very much uh, an advocate of religious liberty on the campaign trail. And I think he and his idea of religious liberty sort of speaks in this one language, which is a sort of conservative Christian view of religious liberty, meaning protection for people who might object to same-sex marriage, uh, protection for people who object to premarital sex or abortion or birth control, and sort of creating those guardrails around claims of conscience that we've seen in Supreme Court cases like Hobby Lobby or the Obergefell case. But I think there's a whole other way of talking about religious liberty that's equally concerning in the Trump administration, which is the protection of religious minorities. This is everyone from Muslims who might be worried about being persecuted either by their fellow citizens or by their government to people who are Jewish, who worry about the cultural currency that's been given to white nationalists and anti-Semites on Twitter because of Trump's campaign. And I think that just shows that there's this sort of disconnect when different groups talk about religious liberty. They're often thinking in different languages and have entirely different concerns in mind. You're listening to Indivisible, and we're taking your calls. We especially want to hear from you right now if you think religious freedom is a central part of your life and identity as an American. Religious freedom connotes, as we've been hearing, all kinds of different things to all kinds of different people. So what's it mean to you? Uh, has it affected your, your sense of belonging here? One, has, 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 does, it, does it mean that you have the, the, the ability to, 
to, to reject social liberalism on things like sexuality, for instance? Does it mean that you have the ability to worship without being profiled as a threat? What's it mean to you? Give us a call, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. While those calls are coming in, let's talk a little bit about comparisons between this discussion in the US and in other democracies. We started off at the top with some numbers from Pew about belonging. It turns out that in Britain, the share of people who say you have to be born British to be British is exactly the same as the share who say that you have to be born American to be truly American, 32%. Canada's more open to the idea that more recent arrivals can become citizens. Italians are even more likely to believe that you need to be born in Italy to be Italian. These different attitudes reflect attitudes to immigration, um, religion, and to an age-old anxiety, I think, that new arrivals either won't learn to be proper citizens or will change the country they're moving to in some new and kind of unsettling ways. Emma... I was struck by the numbers in that Pew survey. 30% more or less of Americans say that you have to be Christian to be truly um, American. What's going on there? Well, there's another statistic if you get even finer grained from that Pew report that I was struck by, which is that 57% of white evangelical Protestants affirm that it's very important to be Christian in order to be truly American. And I think the fact that that group pulls away so much from other Americans who either aren't religious or are Catholic or Jewish or any other number of religious minorities it really suggests that there's this cultural divide and a conception of what it means to be an American. I think the way you all were flipping those statistics around earlier is important and important to keep in mind that there are a lot of people in this country who are enthusiastic about pluralism, that have a lot of toleration for many different types of religious belief or non-belief. But I do think that that number in particular is so important for understanding a subculture that Trump is largely speaking to, which believes that religion is very much tied to our national identity here in the United States. Emma and Jeff, I want to bring in some callers here. I, I'm going to go to Donnell in Morton Grove, Illinois. Donnell, welcome. You are on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Our pleasure. What's been your experience with, with your religious affiliation or religious identity your, and your religious identity and belonging in the United States? Sure. Um, well, that's actually why I was like determined to get my call. In. <laughs> um, so I was born and raised here in the United States. I am a lifelong citizen, and um, my religious identity growing up was Christian, and it was a good experience. And I actually moved to the Chicago area to attend seminary with plans to become an ordained minister for the United Methodist Church. Um, But through my studies, I started, you know, learning about other religions, including Islam. And um, by the time I graduated, I had actually made the decision to change my religion to Islam. So I now identify as a Muslim. That was in 2010. So it was a couple years after Obama's first um, election. And um, I did vote for Obama. Um, as a Christian, I was more progressive than some of my family members. I'm originally from Kansas, so I have kind of, there's two camps in our family. Um, in fact, my stepfather is a senator for the state of Kansas, and he's a Republican. So we have a lot mm. of, there's a little political tension in our family. But um, but I, I was telling, when I called in, I was telling them that for me, as a Muslim now, and in 2010 when I became Muslim, Maybe it's because I was in Chicago, but I just I felt it, like I could be who I 
who I wanted to be as a Muslim. Like I felt like I could, um, I could wear my hijab, which is the uh, headscarf that a lot of Muslim women choose to wear. Um, that's something that I chose to wear, and I still wear um, most of the time. And um, and I I felt like it really, as a as an American, my rights um, as a citizen of this country. I just felt like my religious freedom became so much more important to me mm. because I was no longer Christian. And I and know, it I sounds like so, it made uh, you feel yeah. ironically actually more belonging as a consequence of this notion of our religious freedoms. Yes, exactly. Um, exactly. I think I felt more pride as an American because I was able to embrace my new faith and I felt um, courage to do that in this country at that time. And I have over the last um, eight years as well, um, when Obama was in office, I felt overall um, pretty safe, especially when I was here in Chicago. I, you know, I'm part of a very diverse community here. Um, even the mosque that I'm a, a member of, we have a lot of outreach. We host interfaith events all the time. We're very close within our community to our, our neighbors of other faiths and non-faiths. Um, so, yeah. Donnell, I'm, I'm going to just cut you off real quick because I, I, I appreciate that comment, but we're coming up to a break, and I really want to get in another caller from Chicago who it sounds like has a little different experience, um, and, and so I want to hear from her. Elizabeth, in, in Chicago, you are on the air. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. So I'm a first-generation American. Both my parents are from Mexico, and I've had, um, I think, a quite rare experience in that I've almost had the quintessential American dream. I was a bit, um, an impoverished inner city. I was able, uh, via this program called The Better Chance, get a uh, scholarship and assistance to go to a, a wealthy private school and then go on to, you know, um, go on to one of the seven sisters mm-hmm. in New York and you know, the entire time, I always, I never, it was always incredibly obvious disparity and the one-sidedness of this country. While I had this incredible opportunity, I never, ever felt like I was truly American. And and why, in the, in the quickest way you could put it, why didn't you feel like you were truly American? Because I felt like there was there was the America was a white America was an affluent America was a straight America. I've just seen so much, you know, hatred and disparity that I just never felt American. Well, I felt I, I felt even less so after the election, and I really question why why I actually lived here. So we're, I'll have to leave it there for you, Elizabeth. Thanks for sharing that as well as Danelle. Thank you for your thoughts. We're going to take a short break. You've been listening to Indivisible Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. We will be back with more of your calls about religious freedom and, and how that relates to your sense of belonging. 844-745-TALK. I'm Kai Wright. Stay with us. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. Good evening. I'm John, I'm John Prudeau from The Economist. We are waiting for more calls to come in, but just while they come in, 
I just want to say that a lot of other countries clearly are wrestling with similar questions about uh, identity, immigration, religion, you know, what, how these things come together in order to make a nation. Um, most European countries take a slightly more coercive approach to turning new arrivals, new immigrants um, into citizens than America does. In France, for example, Muslim girls can be suspended from school for wearing headscarves to class. Earlier today, I spoke to Tom Nuttall, who writes a column for The Economist on European politics from Brussels. Tom told me that he thinks European countries are headed in a more kind of French direction. So Germany, uh, in Germany, they've been talking about a headscarf ban, for example. Sometimes these attempts to balance liberty and assimilation end up in a kind of terrible, tangled mess of ideas. So in the Netherlands, for example, uh, you know, the country is very proud of its long tradition of tolerating lots of different religions. But there, there's a far-right populist by the name of Kurt Wilders, who's argued that headscarves worn by Muslim girls are a symbol of intolerance and therefore cannot be tolerated. Uh, Jeff, you direct an institute that's, direct, that's sort of dedicated to diversity. Mm -hmm. What do you make of this backlash against the notion that diversity is great, but somehow, you know, in some places it's gone too far? And how do you reassure Americans who think like that? Uh, the, the European, you know, I think model is, is very instructive. Uh, and in some ways for me, it recalls the, the culture wars, uh, that we went through during the 1980s and the 1990s. Uh, there was a fear at that time on the part of both, uh, liberals and conservatives that multiculturalism would in fact balkanize the U S lead us all into separate camps that would uh, end up warring with each other, that we were headed for a racial and ethnic war, so to speak. Um, and I think that what we've seen instead is that uh, the openness of, 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 of people to, to work with each other, to live with each other, to grow with each other in community has instead transformed the country. Um, and, and so the sort of dreaded racial ethnic apocalypse that was predicted in the 1980s and the 1990s never came to pass. Um, and it's still not. In fact, what we see now uh, feels a little bit unreal, uh, given the fact that we've just been through um, a period in which there's been eight years of a black president. We couldn't have imagined that, I don't think, in, in 1988 or 1989, when, when the culture wars were at their peak. Uh, and I think that, that you know, the, the numbers that Emma was citing earlier about uh, countries like Italy uh, who think very much that it needs to be about being born uh, in the the country in order to be American um, uh, illustrates I think maybe some of the gaps between um, where Europe is at and where we're at uh, what I want to say is that we're in some ways a success story uh, that this was um, this was something that that uh, came out right for us uh, in some ways, despite the fact that there are, I think, uh, a number of people who, who feel uh, pressed upon that, that I think that uh, multiculturalism has worked in, in many respects. Just not a lot of, uh, there's, it's not completely great, but <laughs> there are its problems, right? We've got inequities that still exist, and that's why we have uh, a movement for black lives. That's why we uh, see uh, the growing gaps between the races uh, around these types of uh, questions of wealth, health, income, life expectancy, housing, schooling, uh, incarceration, policing. Um, but 
uh, on the whole, I think that that multiculturalism uh, has has been a boon for the country. The, the debate itself is part of is, is part of the proof of the progress, I guess. Absolutely, yes. So this is just in, to, go ahead, go ahead. Just Emma. just to add for a second, um, this is something that I found out when I was reporting over the summer, and I think it really speaks to what we're talking about here. Uh, so. Donald Trump went to a couple of different churches growing up. His family started out in Queens and then they moved into Manhattan. And the church that they went to in Queens, um, Presbyterian Church, has actually become an immigrant church. Um, So during the time that Trump was attending, it was largely white, sort of middle and upper middle class, very, you know, leave it to beaver 1950s view. And now it's actually become this extraordinarily flourishing church that welcomes immigrants from, I don't know, some two or three dozen nations. I can't remember how many it was. But it was pretty incredible to see the diversity of languages and backgrounds that were represented there. I think this just speaks to to even symbolically the transformation of the country that is, you know, the one right under Donald Trump's feet and isn't necessarily represented by his vision when he is sort of projecting a a sort of fear about cultural integration. This is Indivisible Public Radio's national conversation about race, I'm sorry, about America in a time of change. I'm Kai Wright. Join the conversation when you're ready. Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Or tweet using the hashtag IndivisibleRadio. I'm going to get some callers in here, in particular Richard from Nashville, Tennessee, who I think has an interesting point to add to this. Richard, you're on the air. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling us. Uh, hey, uh, I'm a lifelong Christian. I uh, used to vote Republican straight along party line. But then I decided that the government should be legislating morals. Once I did that, my whole view changed. And now my wife and I feel like if, if, if America's not free and we can take away the rights of any religion that's not Christian, then the government can take away the rights of Christians. Mm-hmm. While it may make me uncomfortable to be around Muslims until I get used to it, America is – a center point of America is the separation of church and state. And if we can start really judging and taking away rights of people – based on religion, they can do it to Christians, and I don't want that to happen. So everybody has to be free if Christians are going to be free. Richard, you said something in there that caught my attention, uh, amongst other things, but when you said you uh, you decided at some point, your wife and you decided at some point uh, that that the government shouldn't be in the business of, of regulating morals, you changed your perspective. What what happened there? What What, what led to your change? Well, for a long time, I've had this creeping feeling that the Republican Party, and I'm sure the Democratic Party too, but Republican Party has been taken over by rich people and stuff. But I kept voting along party lines on gay rights and abortion. But then I decided that my personal belief can't trump oh, – well, that's a bad choice of words – but can't <laughs> overrule the, the Constitution. I mean, this is a human institution by imperfect humans, but it's the best – that we've got, the best that we've seen, I think, in generations of people, and we can't give it up out of fear and stuff and let the government start telling us what to believe. So no matter how much I'm opposed to abortion, I'm almost like you've got to let that woman make that right, and that's between her and God if she believes. Uh, I personally don't believe in abortion as, as birth control, but I honestly don't think that we should be legislating what people can do with their bodies. And gay rights, I'm not for gay rights myself. But again, if you let the government have the power, it's going to consolidate more power. And that's what I'm more afraid of from a human point of view than anything else. 
Richard, can I jump in there and ask you a question about the church-state divide in America? So last week at the National Prayer Breakfast, one of the things Donald Trump said was that he'd be in favour of getting rid of the Johnson Amendment, which, as you know, um, says that churches can't get involved in political activity, or if they do, they risk losing you know, charitable status, which, which has implications for, for tax and other things. Um, some Christians cheer that and think that that's, you know, the Johnson Amendments are kind of unfair restriction on political liberty. Um, some others think that actually, you know, a, the, keeping a kind of clean division between church and, and states really important in America. Where, you know, where would you come out on that one? I, at this point in my life, uh, using my intellect and my heart both, I feel like separation of church and state is critical to the success of America. And, you know, I don't want my government spreading my religion. I spread my religion by my example, by my words, whatever method I can. I don't want the government spreading my religion. And I, and I certainly don't want church dollars going to the government. I want those church dollars doing the church's work of benevolence and helping people and helping immigrants, you know. Uh, if we bring immigrants over here and show them love and kindness— they may ask where that comes from. For me personally, I'll say that comes from Jesus. But I don't need the government doing that. I just um, It just feels very George Orwellian, if you will, of the, everything that's going on. It really scares me. Richard, thank you for that input. Uh, both Emma and Jeff, I, you know, Richard said a mouthful there. I, I, I feel like he's almost throwing back to a, a time in the evangelical movement before it entered politics when they said that the higher value here uh, is the is 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 our faith not being sullied by the political process but then he's also saying that the higher value is uh, is, is is an independent is a government not in our lives I just I just want want your reactions to that either of you it's 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 such a provocative or a, a new thought for this political moment I guess I have a yes. question, actually, for Emma. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, great. Hit I'm me. I'm wondering if the numbers actually show um, a lot of folks out there, uh, like Richard, who are Christian, who um, I'm not sure if, if Richard's evangelical or not, but sort of um, the notion of, of sort of religion and, and a kind of notion of freedom, uh, you know, coalescing side by side. Uh, does that show up in the numbers that you have, have, have looked at in terms of where folks are at religiously uh, in this country? Yeah, so I'd offer a couple of thoughts here. The first is that I think what Richard is describing parallels some of the major Christian denominations, even what we associate as being sort of conservative evangelical denominations, like the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, you know, this is a group that is represents the largest body of churches in the United States, and they have a very active political wing. And yet, one thing that they constantly emphasize when they're talking about religious liberty is that religious liberty has to matter for everyone. Um, mm. This, I think, they recognize in a strategic sense is the only way they can play the game in order to be able to defend their religious liberty. Um, and so that's that's one aspect. I think the other, which was really coming to my mind as he was speaking, was that this is going to be a tension for younger Christians even more and more. I spent some time on Liberty University's campus this fall. That's Jerry Falwell Jr.'s university. It was founded by Jerry Falwell. It's sort of like the ground zero for the religious right. And yet, 
many of the young people that I talked to there, whether they supported Trump, whether they supported Clinton, whether they were not going to vote at all, expressed this feeling of exhaustion with their religious identity, which they cared about a lot, having to be tangled so closely in electoral politics. Mm -hmm. That a few issues they cared about, but they didn't necessarily want to become the next generation of religious right activists. And I think Mm -hmm. that's going to become more and more true as millennials sort of come into age and there is sort of an offset of this older generation of culture warriors who do think that takeover of America is what their goal is. I want to bring in another caller, Nancy from Fremont, North Carol- North ha- Fremont New Hampshire, right? Nancy, is that <laughs> right? Fremont New County, New Hampshire. How are you? Yeah. You're on the air. Thank you very much for taking my call. Um, I'm calling because um, the first time I felt included in this country was when Barack Obama included atheists in one of his speeches saying, you know, everyone should be included, Muslims, Christians, atheists. And I was like, atheists? Well, that's me, first time ever. <laughs> and I am um, a white 60-year-old woman. You know, I've grown up with all the white privileges that were afforded people in the 50s and 60s, and I didn't feel included because I wasn't Christian until he said that. And I was, I've always been grateful to... Mr. Obama for that. Did that change anything for you, Nancy, in that moment? I, you know, when, when you, you had spent a good bit of your life, it sounds like, feeling on some, alienated in some way. Yeah. What, what, did, I, um, I felt more free to tell other people I was atheist. Huh. You know, if people said, you know, Merry Christmas or something, I'd say, thank you. You know, Merry Christmas to you. I, you know, but I'd be able to also say, I, I don't happen to celebrate Christmas, but I hope you have a great, you know, holiday. Um, so I felt more able to say who I was. Well, that's a great just thing. Smiling and going along with it. Thank you for that, Nancy. Jeff, I I want to throw that to you because what I hear her saying something that is we we hear a lot in racial justice spaces that you know mm-hmm. I was seen, I feel seen, and I've yeah. created space for me as a consequence. Uh, and I guess I just want to get you to talk about that idea. Well, it, yes, recognition is is sort of uh, paramount, and representation kind of follows that. Um, I'm I'm just sort of led by the by the last two callers uh, to think um, about the notion of openness um, in in what it is that we're fighting for, openness in democracy, openness in society, um, that religious freedom um, includes uh, the the idea of uh, being against organized religion as well, um, that it that it is about um, saying that these are my beliefs, but I'm not going to to actually enforce my beliefs over over uh, the notion of freedom for all, um, and that the greatest threats uh, in democracy come from within, from people who are working within an open society to try to close it, to try to exclude, to try to shut down. Um, and I think that that's sort of the uh, the ongoing uh, uh, um, issue within democracy, and certainly the crisis that we're we're running up against right at this particular moment in history. Who's in? Who's out? Who gets to speak? Absolutely. Uh, I want to go to Phil in Media, Pennsylvania. Phil, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. What's been your experience with feeling like you have you belong and or are alienated from American culture? So my experience has changed over the past couple of years from being 
what I considered, you know, patriotic, typical American. I'm an Army veteran, and I got out in 2011. And the culture at that time for me and my unit, and I can probably speak for most of the military, is more of a right-leaning kind of institution where we view ourselves, our unit, and, you know, our class as more of a superior kind of entity would we be deployed on the battlefield. And that translated over into politics really quickly. And since I got out, I've gone back to school. I've, you know, listened to more public radio and paid more attention in general. And I've completely shifted from being right-wing to now borderline radical left-wing progressive. (laughs) It really changed for me around the time of the Syrian refugee crisis where, you know, after I got out, most of my contact with most of the people that I served with was via Facebook. And they're all saying, you know, don't take any of these guys in. And I'm like, but wait, these are human beings anyway. And there's lots of irony in that because being in the military, being active duty, you serve with guys from all across the states, all different walks of life, and you become you become accepted. You become part of what our micro-society was. And that not only, you know, to deny diversifying the U.S. by taking whoever in, regardless of where they come from, what language they speak, and who they worship, is outright just hypocritical. It felt... Can I just jump in there? Thanks for your call, and also, obviously, thanks for your service. When you meet up with your old army buddies, do you talk about politics, or has it become a subject that, because you have perhaps different views to some of them, it just is, is, you know, you don't want to go there? Well, I'm still in contact with three of the people that I served with, and only one I really talk about politics with, and he's, you know, I'm proudly anti-Trump, and he's also proudly anti-Trump, and we talk about it then, but the other two aren't really as vested in it, either that or they're just keeping their opinion to themselves. Phil, thanks for your call, and thanks for, 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 for joining us, both Jeff and Emma. It's been an interesting discussion here about who belongs and who does not belong in the United States and in this American culture. You've been listening to Indivisible. This is a new public radio conversation airing four nights a week on stations all over the country for the first hundred days of the new administration. Tomorrow, join WNYC's Brian Lehrer to hear the latest on Donald Trump's conflict with the federal courts. He'll take your calls on whether resistance works. I'm Kai Wright. And I'm John Prudeau. Talk to you all next week. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.